This week's Behind the Idea is about Disney. We covered Disney a few weeks ago, talking about the storied company and how it's going through its own adventure tale, needing to cross over from the safe ticket and cable model to a subscription streaming model that will allow them to defend their castle against the marauding threat of Netflix. Over the past few weeks, we talked to two different guests about Disney. First, we brought on Brian Langus, the Seeking Alpha author whose article we reviewed to start off this discussion. What are his thoughts on Disney's opportunity? And I don't know, they were 1.5 million subscribers, and that's one wrestling product? Right. Imagine Disney, you know? I don't know how they're going to screw that up. Then, we had another guest join us, Derek Thompson of The Atlantic. Derek is host of the podcast Crazy Genius. He's a national correspondent for economics and business, and he's the author of the book Hitmakers. But most germane to our topic, he's written a lot about Disney. Among other things, we asked him whether the Fox deal Disney is about to close is just a content play. But it's, when you say, you know, it's just about adding content, well, yeah, it's just about adding content. Like the reason that Netflix spends $10 billion a year on content is that it's a content race. Both of our guests are reasonably bullish about Disney, but we still hope that it gives you a full picture of the company and its challenges. We invited Bears on, but they didn't get back to us, unfortunately. Before we get started, a couple disclosures. I own shares in Disney. Brian owns shares in Disney, Alimentacion, Kushtard, and Dollarama. Mike and Derek do not own shares in any companies mentioned. Seeking Alpha is a leading website for investment news and analysis. We publish ideas for investors all around the world. None of this should be taken as investment advice of any sort. With all that said, let's raise the curtain and roll the tape. Welcome to Behind the Idea, the podcast where we discuss investment ideas from the Seeking Alpha ecosystem to see what makes great investment analysis work. I'm Daniel Schwartzman, and I'm joined today by Seeking Alpha author Brian Langus. Brian wrote an article about Disney in May that gave a strategic level look at Disney's opportunities and explained why changes in the industry were as much opportunities for the company as they were threats. I wanted to revisit that article with him and see how Disney looks right now to Brian in light of the Fox deal closing or more or less going through this week and the company's strategic outlook in general. So without further ado, Brian, welcome on. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure. So let's just jump. The, the, what I just highlighted is that to me, I took from your article that there's a lot of fear with Disney about cord cutting, about the changing habits of viewers and so on. And to me, it seemed like you were arguing that actually that's not a bad thing for Disney. That can potentially be a good thing. And so I just wanted to open that up. A, did I understand that correctly? And B, how are you sort of looking at cord cutting in general, given that ESPN is sort of Disney's biggest generator of profits, and that's where a lot of the right. discussion about Disney is right now? Yeah. Well, give you a quick background on the article. I was actually talking to a friend uh, by email, French friend, by the way, mentioned to the uh, podcaster or the people listening that I'm French by background, Quebecois. So okay. that's the accent in case they're wondering. <laughs> and uh, so I was talking to a friend of mine via email um, about Disney. We're just back and forth and uh, it was all in French. And I really liked what I wrote. Like I really like, okay, I mean, you know, I really like what I wrote and the argument, all this stuff. So I'm like, you know what? I got an article there because uh, I contribute once in a while. 
Okay. So I typed it up, made it nice, but it's more of an opinion piece. More, you know, there's no valuation really. Uh, it's more my opinion of how business is going to go in the next couple of years. And the story of the article was okay. So the market's very short term, and when I look at Disney, I see two businesses. I see one ESPN or the media, but it's really ESPN mainly. And the other business is uh, Disney, which is the whole Disney empire. The studio, the parks, consumer products, all that stuff. And at the moment, Disney is an ESPN story. So that's what's driving the stock. I've been a shareholder for four years. Oh, I know why, because my daughter's four and I bought her a stock when she was born. So I bought her one share of Disney. And the idea is that I would teach over time, you know, investing and maybe Disney would be a good stock for her to be interested in that. Anyway, that's my grand vision of things. I don't know how that's going to go, but uh, that was the idea. And I have uh, accumulated a little bit more stocks over time because now I have two kids. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, the whole idea was the market is not, it's too short-term oriented. ESPN is the big Wait, you know, every every quarter, how many people cut the, uh, how many people, how many people are not paying for ESPN anymore? That's the story of the quarter, and obviously it's declining, and it's going to keep declining, and ESPN will still be the focus point. But you know, Bob Iger and Disney, they told you what the game plan is going to be for the future. They told you, and they told us back in uh, I think it's December, they're going over the top. Uh, they're still going to keep their legacy business, the media and the cable and all that stuff. But at the same time, they're going to develop an alternative because, you know, they they know what the future is going to look like. And the future is, look, we all know that like, the future, not, it's not that hard to see that in five years where TV is going, where cable is going. First, people hate their cable providers. They hate it. You know, it's one of the bills that they hate paying. And the day where they have a good alternative, you know, a better internet connection or a better value product, for example, Netflix, you know, they'll jump over. And, I mean, the trend is that people are not going back to cable. They're not. And it's not good for Disney, but at the same time, they're going to make sure that they are in control of their own future. And I think cable is going the same way. Uh, that that landline does, you know, like the, the the people are all mobile now. There's some landlines left, and there's always going to be some cable people left. But like my mom, my mom's never going to switch. She's just comfortable with cable. But at the same time, I think it's good to have a multi-platform strategy. So Disney wants to be on everything, and at the moment, you know, they have they have all the middlemen, all these things. So I want, I think they want to control the uh, consumer experience as much as possible, and uh, they have the IP to do that. So all you're going to need in the future is really connection in the screen, and that's it. And uh, Disney wants to be on all uh, all these things, but uh, that was, uh, I think that was what the article was about. <laughs> so so what is, so let's, let's pick that apart a little bit more. What is, right. ESPN Plus has rolled out, uh, I think mm-hmm. what they're calling, or I think what either they're calling or you called in your article, Disney Plus is a 2019 launch date, more or less. Um, yeah. 
What are you looking for? I, I know I'm not saying like what key numbers on the Q2 call will you. I, uh-huh. I know it's not a short-term story per se, but right. what are you looking for trend-wise as this gets rolling? What do you want to see from Disney over the next, let's say, year or two for signs of how the transition is going? What are you watching for? Well, I think the big questions are, you know, now people know they're going over the top. So what is it going to be? I, I don't think it's a problem for Disney to do it. If there's one media company that can do it, it's them. But I think the big risk here is it's more on the execution side, executing the strategy, the operations, how are they going to sell it? How are they going to brand it? How much is it going to cost? You know, now with the Hulu and the Fox acquisition and uh, and uh, the ESPN Plus and the Disney Flix or Disney Plus, we don't know the name of it yet. Mm-hmm. It could be confusing. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. But so I think they want they probably want to shed some light on it. But at the same time, it's probably in the best interest of the company to keep it secret as long as possible. Maybe an idea not to tip off competitors or potential competitors. But uh, they know that Disney is up to something. But uh, no, I'd like to see more clarification about the strategy and how they're going to go ahead. Uh, you know, it's really exciting. I think when they come out with, I think I mentioned in the article, something like uh, Frozen, for example. They're talking about uh, a new Frozen coming out next year. Now, I have two girls, and my oldest one caught the uh, the last end of it. You know, she didn't get the peak of Frozen, but... Mm-hmm. Enough just for her to go crazy. We went to the Disney show and all this stuff. And it's just, you know, for me not to pay $10 a month or $5 a month, doesn't matter how much it is, it's going to pay for itself. And, and I don't think it's a value proposition problem. It's going to be more on how they execute it. But to go back to the root of your question, I have no clue what Q2 will look like. Probably more declining on ESPN, media but the park and movies will look awesome, you know, because all the movies they keep coming out with, all these, uh, every two weeks, Disney's dominating the box office with some new name. But yeah, I think, I think, uh, I, I don't know if I touch a question or not. But, uh, <laughs> well, so l- let me, let me try to then point it a little bit more. For example, one thing that I believe Rich Greenfeld says, uh, he's the analyst at BTIG. I think he's considered quite an ax on media in general. He's a big Netflix bull and quite skeptical of Disney. And I think one of his points is that he's, that Disney is going to kind of go halfway. And so for example, ESPN plus, I don't think they're not putting, I don't think they're really even putting major league baseball games on there yet, let alone, you know, Mm -hmm. Monday night football game or NBA or whatever. Like it's still sort of this quirky package. You can watch their soccer coverage or whatever else, but it's not. And so I guess, yeah, well, (laughs) that's high demand curly, (laughs) Um, but, but what is the, and you could see the same with the movies too. There's still, I, I, I mean, I'm imagining you could see, it's hard to wean yourself off of that box office big number and whatever else. Right. And how do you balance that? How do you see that sort of, are, are, do you have an, a framework that you're evaluating how much they balance essentially between 
cannibalizing themselves too fast or holding on too much to their old businesses and not moving enough into the new direction? Is that something you're, how are you watching for that? Well, I think one of the, the guy and the head guy at Disney in charge of a streaming, I, I don't know his name, I don't know his title, but the guy in charge of it back in December said that Disney is going all in, right? We're going all in on streaming. And, you know, the, the analysts kind of right. It's, it's more like all over the place. Uh, so they're at the TV business. But at the same time, I don't see why they can't do all of it. Uh, the TV business is a really, really good business. Yes, it's declining, but it, it's the cash cow. You're making so much money out of it. And it's low, ca- you know, it's low, low capex, great money. Now you can take that money and gradually develop your other platforms. But I think the big question is, when is it going to be the tipping point, right? When, when is it going to be the, the streaming overcome or kills its old business, the legacy business? At the same time, y- y- you know, y- you don't, you can be early at this and maybe they are, or maybe they're late. Somebody can argue, look, this is, this is Netflix game or whatever. And Disney is going to be late at this. I don't know. I, I don't have a date or a framework, uh, but you're right. It's going to be really hard to get off that big ticket box office numbers. And, you know, all right, we're going to charge. I, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe the long-term vision, look, maybe if they realize if they have a long-term vision, I think they do where a subscriber number is worth more than a one-time ticket. Right, because look, the movie business is a tough one. It's a hit business. It's extremely hard. So basically, you know, for me, I see a lot of value in getting, let's say, a Disney package or Netflix. Going to movies. So now you have to convince me that going to movies is a good idea. So I want to see, let's say, the new Star Wars, maybe. So I have to find the time. I have to get the kids in the car. I had to drive over there. I had to find parking. I had to buy popcorn. I had to buy drinks. I had to find a seat. I had to watch 20 minutes of commercial, sit for two hours, not go to the washroom, and then come back home with a lot less money. It's a bet. Now, I can do this at home. And they're not going to have, they don't have to release a movie every two weeks because they went to a stretch in the spring where they had the Black Panther and then they had the Avenger and then the new Star Wars comes out and, and now the incredible, like every other week if something Disney comes out, it just dominates the box office. And yeah, it's going to be hard to, to get off that. But, you know, I think within the five year span where they're going to be like, look, we don't have to compete with the right, our, our, our products are not going to have, you know, especially when they acquire all the Fox stuff, we don't have to compete with, sh- each product, you know, for a slot on the weekend, uh, where that's what the business is. Okay, let's find the right weekend. And even if you have a great product, doesn't mean people will go out and spend money on it. Or maybe people are away that weekend, right? A long weekend. Or maybe there's some other great movie that's coming out at the same time. There's no room for two. So it's a very risky business. And I think the long-term value of adding subscribers is, you know, the, the, the sub adding them and that value of that recurring revenue, which we, somebody will argue it's called Disney as a service, is worth a lot more than, you know, trying to hit, trying to have a hit at the uh, box office. 
But yeah, I can see why people can be negative short term. I mean, they haven't really say how they're going to go about it. Let, let's let's. There's a lot. I I want to return to <laughs> when we get into the numbers and sort of that sort of thing. But mm-hmm. quickly, how important do you think Fox is? They they Comcast has given up their bid for Fox. Disney has to pay yeah. about twenty billion more than they originally announced the deal for. How yeah. are you sort of? Is that a big part of the picture for you? Is that are you like how? What do you think about it now that it's yeah. going through? You know, it's Disney is playing two games. They're playing defensive and they're playing offensive. So they're playing defensive in the leg, in, in in the legacy business by acquiring Fox assets. I think it's mainly good. I don't have a really strong opinion on it. I I believe Disney is doing what's in their best interest and for the shareholders. It sounds like a lot of money to me when you're talking about seventy billion dollars. Some of it in stock, some of it in cash. Look, that number, yeah, it's a big number, and they pay twenty billion dollars more because of Comcast. Now they're going to have some very interesting intellectual property on it, uh, and there's two different ways you can look at it. They spent four billion on Star Wars, which now looks like a steal. They spent four billion on Marvel. Again, looks like a steal. They spent seven billion dollars on Pixar. Nobody was argue they overpaid there. And the, I think over the years they spent under like fifteen or twenty billion developing new shows, a new franchise that didn't get them anywhere. They they try with different movies. You know, in that fifteen or twenty billion dollar that they spent, they didn't get the Lord of the Rings or uh, Harry Potter, you know what I mean? They're trying to create stuff. You know, if you spend a hundred million on a show or a movie and it's not, nobody watch, watch it, then you just lost a hundred million. You got nothing to show for, right? You, you, you spent 30 million on a TV show and it's a bomb, then you just lost 30 million. You, you know, it's not like a building, well, maybe I can sell it later. No, you got nothing. So when they spent 70 billion, you could argue that, yeah, we're getting stuff. We're getting great franchises and great names. We're getting Avatar. We're getting The Simpsons, you know, trophy assets. And, again, uh, if the idea is to put on their network, I mean, their uh, uh, Disney Plus or whatever it's called, uh, then, yeah, they're probably, it's probably the right thing to do or somebody else will buy them. You know what I mean? If they don't buy it, somebody else will. And... Netflix, uh, not Netflix, Disney has their own content and they're going to acquire more. Netflix is struggling. Uh, not Sorry, this company is not struggling. The stock is not struggling, but they're struggling to create new content, right? It's a hit business. So they had House of Cards that worked and then they had Stranger Things that worked. But they're releasing so much stuff. I, I don't know. You know, once in a while, something will catch and people will sign up, but they have a lot of stuff on there and they're spending a lot of money on content. And... It's fun. I find I find that's funny that you know Netflix is the company that everybody talks about and it's great, stuff's doing great, but you know they're burning through cash like crazy. They're trying to develop content that maybe doesn't stick. While Disney, this old dinosaur that has all the profit, all the free cash flow, some level of growth, but they're talking about going. Uh, they, they're going to have their streaming soon and. It seems like nobody really pay for that. I mean, if you're looking at a margin of safety, maybe that's one. But yeah, that's that's my take on it. 
So let let's let's go into Netflix just a little bit more. Uh, mm-hmm. It looks like Disney has caught up again with Netflix in terms of market cap. So Disney's market cap is a little yeah. higher. But mm-hmm. how much do you think about Netflix as a Disney shareholder in terms of is it a competitor? Is it do you like how do you because that's a popular pairing to just look at those two companies and then right. on the one hand somebody will say that. Netflix just knows the distribution game better and they have all these advantages and they are growing revenue and growing subscribers really fast and it's going to be too hard for Disney to move. On the other hand, Disney makes a lot more money, a lot more free cash, like you said. So what? Are, what how are you sort of viewing Netflix across the aisle from Disney? Well, Netflix is a great company and they have a great CEO. He had a great vision and look at them where they are now. They're the king. They're the king right now. I mean, you could argue about the valuation, but they offer a product too. You know, their, their product works very well across multiple platforms. Um, now it's valuation. You know, I, I read a tweet which pretty much summed them up. And the tweet was like this. It was like, the bull case for Netflix is that they spent a, bu- they spent a bunch of money on content to drive subscriber growth, right? Netflix is a subscriber growth story. And the bear case with Disney is that they spend a bunch of money on content to drive subscriber growth. So they're both doing the same thing, but one's getting high valuation and the other one is not, you know? <laughs> so, and it's, it, it comes down to how you sell it. Netflix, the guy knows how to sell. He's selling a vision of the future. He's selling, we're growing, we're growing, we're growing. Who cares about profit? Who cares about free cash flow? Every month or every quarter, people look, you know, look at how many subscribers they got. So it's a subscriber growth story. And it seems that's what people are focusing on. They don't care if the, the company is going to have to raise money. It's, you know, it's, and Netflix also is a success of, of uh, it should take the success to the, uh, the, I don't know, the cheap money out there that that's people are throwing at them. Well, this needs is going to be internally funded. You know, I, I don't know if, if, let's see, the interest rate goes up, the market change, mm-hmm. or, or the capital market is not as generous, but Disney has the muscle, thanks to their declining TV business, to, to, to invest. But yeah, it's a, it's, Netflix is a great competitor, and they have the best product, you know, streaming right now, and they invest a lot in technology. But it doesn't have to be, it's not a zero-sum game. You know what I mean? I'm not a Netflix subscriber. I'm a happy subscriber. They raise the price every year, but, you know, I have to deliver that. I don't have cable. So, you know, but Disney, it's not like you can't have Netflix and you can't have Disney Flix or Disney Plus. You can have both, just like people have 200 TV channels. So I, I don't know why you can't live in the same world. Once Disney has their own platform and, and they move all the content that Netflix has from Disney over over to their own platform, I don't know why, like, like I think Netflix should be on the defensive and not Disney. You know, Netflix should probably argue, look, what's, what's going to happen when Disney and the other companies that provide content to Netflix, they realize, oh, that stuff is worth money. You know, because they used to have this bulk of stuff and Netflix would be like, hey, can I have that stuff? And people are like, yeah, you're crazy, but take it. And he made these deals pretty much that cost him nothing, but now people are realizing that stuff is worth money. And that Netflix should be more on the defensive than they are now explaining, 
in 20, 20, 21, 2022, like what's, what do you have to show people? And I mean, they're spending 10 billion, 8 billion a year to get stuff on their uh, platform. So I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what happens, but it's going to be, you know, it's not like you don't, can't own both of them. People are like Disney against Netflix or be together. I think Disney missed out on a chance to buy Netflix back uh, before they started doing own content. I think I think it was ten billion dollar Netflix was valued at the time, mm-hmm. and ten or twenty. When House of Cards came, made House of Cards. I think this Netflix was ten billion or twenty billion, and there was rumors that oh Apple or Disney or anybody would buy Netflix, but it's too expensive. Right, right, and then yeah, and I mean. Look, the joke's on who now, right? <laughs> right. So, yeah. So, so good for Netflix. So let, let's go into numbers just a little bit then, too. So you, you said, and we called this yeah. out and enjoyed this, you said in your article, there's no DCF mm-hmm. here. I'm not doing yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. yeah Our right. question, my question for you is, have you done any sort of valuation work on Disney? And sort of what is your analysis on that from that perspective? I, okay, so yeah, I didn't do a DCF, and I don't have a, a, a full-blown valuation model, and I don't have a lot of numbers. So my the, my, the framework that I use was, for example, the valuation side of Disney. You don't buy companies as grow, like I don't buy companies as growth investor would do, uh, expecting the future to be fantastic and paying up for it and expecting everything to come up perfectly. Uh, I don't have a forecast on how exactly things are going to happen with the technology or something else. And I can't, you know, I don't have a crystal ball that's going to go down. So I know that, you know, what they're, they're aiming for seven or eight bucks a share this year in the earning per share. I think it was close to six last year. So I'm paying what, 15 times, 16 times earnings. And and the margin of safety here is really in the quality of the business and the intellectual property and also holding it for a really, really, really long time. I'm not planning to sell this. Like I said, I think in an article I say I'm planning, you know, I have a five-year outlook or I'm planning on holding for five years. Really, I never plan to sell this thing. So if I'm buying at six times, uh, sorry, uh, $6 a share of earning and that grows over time, you know, I, I have a no problem with that. And at the same time, the other margin of safety is, you know, you go in the car with the two kids and I don't mind paying 10 bucks a month. So they stop screaming and crying and just start, you know, messing up the car. So it pays for itself. So that's my margin of safety. So, so let me, and I, I, I'm going to follow up on that question, but also I had one that I was going to ask you, which is you've well, talked. Well, it's a cheap stock. It's not that expensive, right? So right. you don't need a lot to go right right now. You know, you don't need a ton of things to go right to make money with that share. In Netflix's case, it seems like, I don't know. I, I really don't know. I can't buy it. I'm a subscriber, but I can't buy the share. I just don't know how to justify their numbers or their earnings. But with Netflix, uh, sorry, with Disney, Disney can show you will make six or seven or eight dollars earning per share. And then now with the new acquisition, uh, I, I saw some numbers this week. Some, you know, more, I think Morningstar or somebody valued it at one hundred thirty dollars, 
and they didn't put anything to the streaming. That was just with the acquisition of, of, of Fox and Sky and all the other stuff. They say, yeah, that's a $130 share, and they worked out the numbers. But uh, uh, they, didn't, they didn't even took into consideration the, uh, the potential growth of the, uh, the streaming platform. So there's a margin of safety for you. But so, and I can understand, I think there's a lot to be said for sort of keeping it simple. And the story is probably what matters, especially when you're not paying through through the nose. But what I'm curious about is, you've talked a few times on this call about, for example, your experience with Disney as a customer, as a parent. Mm-hmm. And, and also then you're not, you're not doing a super rigorous sort of quantitative estimate here. And so I guess my concern with both the Peter Lynch sort of, and I, and I, I'm simplifying this to ask the question, but you have the sort of Peter Lynch outlook of, I know the company and I can experience it that way. And then also you have this sort of, it's, it's a cheap stock. I have a margin of safety now uh-huh. yeah. and I'm hopeful, you know, expecting potential upside. What is the, what would how do you keep from getting too stuck in your position given that? Or how do you potentially, what would you need to change your mind? I'm just curious, what, what sort of exit ramps are you giving yourself if Disney doesn't ex- execute or whatever else? Lack of vision, lack of leadership, and a screw-up in operations. If they want to do this right, and, and I think Bob Iger is a great CEO and he's done great things for Disney. I, I think if they want to do this right is really, really trying to create the vision of uh, the Disney founder, the guy, what was his name? Uh, oh, remember, Disney. Roy? Well, yeah, oh. what was his name? Roy? Yeah. So, and that is to really, really control the the customer experience back in his days they couldn't do that right you had to go to the studio they go to tv and then go to the theme park but now disney is in position to totally totally control the consumer experience and we always talk about you know it's a movie is the movie going to be a hit or, or or you know that kind of thing it's more than that all these the magic of disney is taking an idea a character a personality a cartoon and building like an empire around it. You know, look what they did with Marvel or look what they're going to, whatever they did to Marvel, they're doing it to Disney now, right? So you went from a bunch of movies and now you have books and now you have characters and now you have toys and now you're going to have the theme park. Uh, so, you know, it's really, it's, it's more than just about selling tickets uh, or books. It's, it's about the whole you know, vision, I think. I, I think it's going to be, I, I really think in, in five years, uh, then we're going to do this podcast again. And in hindsight, I, I really think, and I don't have a crystal ball and I'm not good at predictions, but it's just one of these feelings that it looks like that's where it's going, where, you know, we're going to talk about how Disney is $110 a share and, and in 2024 or 22, whatever, and we talk again. But hopefully before that, but when, <laughs> when we talk about Netflix, uh, the Disney, sorry, uh, we're going to have a story like, remember when, you know, we were talking about, oh, is the streaming going to work or how, how, you know, what's the future for Disney and, and how can we not see this coming? 
You know, just like Netflix in 2006 was a DVD rental company. People right. forget that. You're still doing that, I think. But it was a DVD rental company. And when the guys say, we're going streaming, and he was early, right? Because the internet wasn't that great back then. But he was mm -hmm. early. And he's like, we're going streaming. People hated him for that. They hated the stock. The stock took a beating. There was articles and papers about how Netflix going to die. And look how silly that looks now. And I think the conversation we're having now is similar to having a conversation about Netflix back in 2006, how the whole streaming thing is going to go. Uh, and I, I know, I know, I, I know, I might be I'm too sure of myself, maybe not, but uh, I mean, I've seen this play with Netflix and, and you know, I, I never bought the stock and now I regret it. I, uh, it was the same with the WWE, you know, as silly as the whole product is. These guys went over the top. They went over the top alone. Right. You know, people are paying, I don't know, like 10 bucks or more a month. And when they announced that, when WWE in 2015, I think, say, we're doing over the top, you know, we're, we're ditching the pay-per-view model, which was their cash cow. They're ditching it. They said, we're killing it. People, you know, hated the company for that. They hated the stock. And now it's creating at... People can't get enough of it. Now it's trading. Look how, you know, visionary Vince McMahon was and what a great decision they made. And look all this. And I don't know, they were 1.5 million subscribers. And that's one wrestling product. Right. Imagine Disney, you know. I, I, I just, I just, so I don't know how they're going to screw that up. But it's, it's, you know, it's, you know, I, I, did I answer the question? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I don't know what the question was. But, uh, <laughs> no, it was it was like, it was just trying to get a sense of how how yeah. we, when you invest with that investing is just interesting because it is this mix of investing with conviction, but at the yeah. same time incorporating new information, incorporating new uh, facts into your outlook because we we don't have a crystal ball and whatever. Yeah, while, right. Your scenario is believable, but it's possible that you could also imagine a scenario where Disney never moves fast enough, and by the time they move, somebody else is, you know, whatever it is, you could, or their sports rights, they get competed, com competition yeah. from Amazon, Facebook, Twitter, whatever. That's so, mm -hmm. so maybe I think that's the story on Disney, but I wanted to follow up with just one other thing is you re recently wrote an article and I think it sort of fits into this a little bit. You recently wrote an article about value investing being in a funk and I just, and, and sort of that, as you were saying that about imagining Disney a few years from now and that sort of approach, I'm just curious if you could sort of update, what, what are your views on value investing? You had a line in here that, you know, you led the article with value investing no longer seems to work, but it, in my view, paying less than something is worth will always work. How are you, we're in, there's some debate over whether there was a bear market thrown in here, but we're at a point where the markets have been going up for a while, where they seem to be more than fairly valued. How do right. you find things that are less than their worth in the market when everything seems to be quite expensive. I look where other people are not looking. I, I know that's a cheesy answer, and uh, you know, uh, no, it, it's you know, everybody's focusing on the same stocks, the same the Netflix, the Alphabet, the Tesla. Everybody's 
talking about you know the, the five or ten th- companies all the time. I, I you know I don't have a place where I go to to get ideas. Sorry, I do. It's called Seeking Alpha. Here's a plug. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got uh, I got other other places that that you know it's just the way I function. I, I'll be walking down the street and I see. Uh, I don't know anything uh, store and impose a product, and I always ask myself, well, who makes this? You know, who who who's behind this? Uh, and sometimes you just find ideas like this. You find out the name of the company, so does somebody own it? Is it public? And sometimes that's how I find ideas. The other I, the other way is I'm a consumer of the products. And for example, my first ever seeking out for article, not to brag, but my first ever seeking out for article. It was Dollarama, the dollar store chain in Canada. And back then, yeah, back then, I think it was expensive. I think I paid like 20, 25 times earning. And that was in 2013. Still a shareholder. And it's up 350% since then. And it was, you know, considered expensive back then and still expensive today. But I go to that store like every week. Me and my family... It's a nice store. They got things you need. It's cheap. It's well run. Uh, the family running it. Management. They are expert merchant. You know, I think they've been in the, uh, the merchandise business, commercial business for three generations. They know how to run a store or many stores. And, you know, there's something about having great management and Great stores, and I the store. I go in the store. There's a lineup all the time. There's people, you know, and they have a niche market in the sense that it's not like a true dollar store because it's up to four dollars. It's, mm-hmm. it's you know one, two, three, four. They have pr- different price points, so it's not like a real a dollar or less store. Mm-hmm. But uh, they have good brands in there. They have things for family. They have diapers, wine. I'm all kind of stuff and main like huggies. So it's not your dollar store from you know the 90s where everything is has dust on it and it smells like cleaning product in there and everything is shady oh that that's a nice little store and they're not a walmart so they're not competing against all the big guys and amazon can't really do what they're doing and they're not doing what amazon is doing so they have their own little thing and when there's a dollar store coming to town, it's the dollar store. And when Dollarama comes to town, it's Dollarama's place now. All the other funky little shady stores, they can't compete with these guys. And that's their territory. But, you know, that's one idea. The other idea is that Couchetal, uh, Alimentation Couchetal, I, I have no clue how to say that in English. Or in the States, called Circle K. Oh, yeah, yeah. Aliment- you know the gas yeah, station? Yeah, yeah. yeah store? Sir, okay, yeah. Alimentation Couchetard. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But right. it's, so, it's A-N-C-U-F, I want to say, is the ticker. Yeah, that would be the uh, the American one, right? The Correct. Uh, yeah. ATD in Canada, Couchetard. Couchetard, I don't know how you pronounce it in English. They're one of the biggest convenience store guy in the world. And again, it comes back to management. These guys know how to run a store. Uh but right now, it's the stock's been doing very well. If you look at it from a decade point of view, but in the last two, three years, it's been kind of flat mm-hmm. because uh, people are, uh, the whole electric car thing, right? They're not going to, people think the electric car is going to get rid of the gas station. But what people seem not to be understanding is that what Kirin Kushka are also investing in 
they're also investing in uh, charging stations because they have to get people in their stores, right? So the whole idea is to get people in the stores. So instead of gas stations, they might be charging stations in the future. Who knows? But I mean, we're we're not there yet. Uh, but uh, I mean, yeah, I get, I get, you know, I get. Usually, when you go where people are not looking, yeah, sometimes it helps. But uh, I and uh, yeah. I think the Kush Alimentacion Kushtard Circle K's success is due to the fact that they have prominent product placement in one of the greatest movies of our time, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures. And oh yeah, <laughs> there's the famous line "Strange things afoot at the Circle K," and I I suspect that is what is driving yeah. brand recognition. No, um, so. The question I wanted to ask then is just what five years ago. So I just looked up the date, June third, two thousand thirteen. You published. Oh, is that right? Circle. So it's been five years. Oh wow! Yeah, five years since that Delorama. How has your <laughs> investing evolved or changed in those five years? Given given the market climate that I sort of mentioned, what mm-hmm. what, what is and your article like? What has changed for you over the? Obviously, you've become a parent, which I guess maybe a yeah, life change. That's right. Term, yeah, it, maybe that's an impact. But in terms of the your investing growth over that time, what what have you? How have you evolved over that time? Uh you know, I I would say that I am a little bit more careful, maybe because I'm more mature, maybe because because I'm more experienced. At the same time. You know, I look at the two, four things when I value a company, like the, the broad ideas, right? So is the company generating profit? Is it generating free cash flow? And is it growing? So that's one thing. The other thing is, do I understand the business, right? How does it make money? What's the business model? And then the third thing would be something like management and capital allocation. And the fourth thing is its valuation. But, you know, if you want to get... The, tr- the first three are usually together. Like if the share price is high, that means the first three, like the, 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 the free cash flow, the management, the capital allocation, and the business are, are all great, right? right. It's kinda, you're not going to have one isolated from the other one. So I think where I put a lot more emphasis now is management. And it's something that I, you know, it was a car- criteria in the past. It was like, oh, good management is important. But now it's more and more the criteria in the sense that it doesn't matter like what the business is really. It could be like a great idea or a bad idea, but if you don't have the right management there, like your investment's not going anywhere. So I I really focus more and more on that and it's it's really an intangible. Uh, well an intangible in the sense you have to kind of seize what management's doing. On how, how their character, and you also have the tangible aspect of, well, if they're good, then we can see, you know, their returns in the past. They're, they're right. So we can gauge that. And uh, but uh, I think that has trumped a lot. It is the right management and having the right people in place is is it's something that I don't, I don't know I, I understood, you know, like I knew it back then. I know, but at the same time now, it's kind of like the core, really. Uh, right. Like, yeah. Because let's say you have a cheap stock, or you find a company and it's trading so cheap, wow, and it's great quality business or, or, or a great industry, but then you got terrible management. 
well, it's not gonna. I don't think it's gonna work out. You know what I mean? Well, it's it's you've sort of flipped the old Buffett saying though about um, what is his line? <laughs> I got coated with Buffett. That's great. <laughs> well, he, what does he say? He says that you better hope that the business is good enough to be run by an idiot because someday it will be. And so you're you're sort of going the opposite way and saying, oh, actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd rather. I, I think as long as a as a good. I mean. I'm exaggerating because you've also said you're looking yeah. for all the business elements, but it's just interesting that that's right. There. Yeah, you said something. Uh, I want I want a monkey to be able to run a business or something like that, right? He wants uh, he wants a business. A ham sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a ham sandwich that he said. Is that right? I I, I could be wrong. I I feel like I said that once to. Mike in a chat and he looked at me or he I could tell online he was looking at me like I had two heads so it might not be ham sandwich but I don't know I think you said a monkey could run Coca-Cola no I don't know well listeners will have to write in and tell us whether it's a monkey or a ham sandwich yeah now the comments gonna start coming in like we don't know what we're talking about and uh... (laughs) We're, we're losing our credibility at this point rapidly um, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, but that that's that's great. I mean, I think it's just it's it's interesting and I think that helps in terms of understanding the Disney thesis. Maybe if if you have time for one more question just sort of to bring it back to sure. Disney. Bob Iger is due to I think to step down now in 2020. How much yeah. is that risk event for you or like how how are you sort of thinking about the fact that as good as he may have been he's going right. to be out the door soon well a little bit i think that you know he was planning to retire a couple of years ago and that didn't work out uh yeah yeah I, there's a couple of rumors that that one he might retire 2020 2021 that he might run for president that kind of stuff uh it is a key risk uh i don't think disney is you know, an easy company to to run. It's a massive company with so many different moving parts. And so, yeah, finding the right person that that's willing to think long-term and execute the vision that Disney or the original Disney founder had, no, it is a key risk. And I don't think anybody can just come in and run that company. Uh, I don't know, maybe they'll have to go from the outside to get one, but at the same time, I don't know, maybe you want somebody from inside who knows Bob Iger, who work with him, who knows the Disney culture, that, that magical thing that they have going on over there. Uh, so, but yeah, he's trying to retire, I think a couple of years ago, and that didn't work out, so they kept him on, but at the same time, I don't think they want to screw that up. So they probably have a strong succession, succession plan in place um they know we don't know it but they i think they know um but uh yeah he's a key guy there for sure and he's not going to be it's going to be hard to replace him so yeah so that may be something to watch for it i think the timeline is interesting because it gives them if he sticks to the expected timeline it gives them a chance to get their streaming services out the door with some decent yeah. runway to see how they're doing. It gives them time to integrate Fox. And so we should have yeah. in theory, a fuller picture of where Disney is heading before he leaves. Yeah. I think he wants to get these two things done. And at the same time, uh, I, I, you know, I don't think he, he, 
what I really like, I think he's thinking really long term. You know, I think he wants whoever takes over is is in, is in a good position. But I don't think Buyer is like fighting for his job. And say, you know, have some CEO, they know they might be in trouble or they don't know how long they're going to be in a job. So make short-term decisions, maybe to look good, but long-term will penalize the company. So it's just mm-hmm. maybe to buy themselves another year or two on the job. Who knows? So I don't think he's suffering from that. I think he's like, look, I don't want to make, I'm making decisions today mm-hmm. that would benefit this company in five, 10, 15 years. And you know, maybe he's working because he has a good legacy right now, right? So maybe he's putting he's putting down the line. Uh, right. So uh, you know, he's putting down on the line because he he turned Disney uh, to a great company, and sure, he didn't fix ESPN. It's not an easy fix. We'll see what happened with ESPN. But I think I don't think he wants to leave with the. You know, he could have left on 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 the top and look, I left on the best and. But now, you know, he's decided to take on more, and uh, it's good. I admire him for that. Okay, great. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much, Brian. I really enjoyed getting a chance to talk with you about this. I'm obviously watching Disney with close attention, and I know you will be. And I would, I hope we'll be speaking before five years from now, but I hope we'll also get a chance five <laughs> years from now to see whether or not the your crystal ball played out like you were hoping it would. Right. Right, right, right. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure doing this. That was the call with Brian, which was recorded on July 20th. The call with Derek was recorded on August 3rd, right before the latest earnings report. I should mention that our call with Derek has technical difficulties due to the recording. The sound isn't as good as it should be, especially when he and I are speaking. I apologize for that. The discussion is still a good one, and I hope you listen closely as it'll give you more color on the Disney story and what they're doing with this strategy. One thing I enjoyed about this conversation is that Derek is bringing a different perspective. He spent time talking with people at Disney and experts in the industry, and I think it adds nicely to the investing perspective that Brian offers, and that is more the focus on Seeking Alpha. Anyway, let's get started. All right, we have Derek Thompson from the Atlantic on time that you uh, deal with us. So, Derek, welcome on. Thank you. It's good to be here. So, just before we start, you've written a lot about Disney, you've written a lot about media companies, but our listeners might not be as familiar with your work, so can you just give us a quick sort of overview of what you, uh, what your view would be here now? Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, I am a staff writer with The Atlantic Magazine. I write a lot about economics and the media and technology. Um, and I'm particularly interested in uh, the economics of television. Uh, I wrote a book, a uh, national best-selling book, uh, last year called Hitmakers, um, about what uh, hit in pop culture history and movies, music, and television and art tell us about the science of why we like what we like, science of human affinity. Um, and I'm currently the host of uh, the Atlantic's tech and culture podcast, which is called Crazy Genius. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Crazy Genius. I, uh, I, uh, I enjoyed the episodes. Um, so, so what's your what's your take on Disney? Is kind of it's it's kind of rebounded a little bit recently. It's a company that is uh, stock is more or less even with Netflix, which is kind of a funny mm-hmm. case given how much Disney makes better profit than Netflix and just about every normal metric and. They're sort of 
challenged by the lost cable revenues or challenged by a few other things. What do you like what's what sort of the outlook do you have for like where where how do you see the company right now? How do you see where their position is in the market? Well, I think Disney is one of the most interesting companies in America, one of the most interesting companies in the world. And, you know, in a way, I think that the path forward for Disney looks a lot like a history. Uh, Disney was one of the first media companies in the U.S. to understand the importance of distribution and what they used to call uh, at Disney total merchandising. That is the understanding that the way to make money from an IP is not just to see a movie as a movie, but to see a movie as a potential toy, a potential amusement park ride, um, to find as many possible channels to merchandise uh, a character or story as possible. Um, the reason that Disney does brilliant do it better than anybody else. I believe eight out of the ten uh, most highly trafficked amusement parks in the world are owned by the Walt Disney Company. Um, and this is obviously an organization that understands how to make people. I think uh, they are responsible for something like half of the uh, billion-dollar global box office films uh, in, uh, in the history of, of movies. And they're absolutely without parallel at turning their products into kind of infinite loops of monetizable content. And this is something that Netflix has not yet figured out how to do. In a way, you sort of think of Disney and Netflix as sort of being like that story of the fox and the hedgehog. Um, the, the fox knows how to do many things well. The hedge, the, the, sorry, the fox and the hedgehog. Um, the fox knows how to do many things well, and the hedgehog knows, knows one big thing. Uh, that was the, uh, the, the story from it, the philosopher Isaiah Berlin. And, you know, in a way, Disney is like the fox. It knows how to make movies, it knows how to make amusement parks, it knows how to make television, it knows how to make toys. And then Netflix understands one thing really, really well, which is it understands the psychology and the technology of streaming. And I think the story of the next 20 years in entertainment is going to be a story of this great power struggle between Disney and Netflix. And Disney become Netflix faster than Netflix can become Disney. And despite what the companies are saying publicly, I do, I do think that they want to rip out a page uh, from their opponents, each opponent's title. And so from reading your work, you sound reasonably bullish that Disney will figure it out, will figure out streaming, more or less. And the question is, if we get that right, the question is, why do you think that that will... Why do you think that Disney can pull that off? And what are you kind of watching for to see whether they will or not? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. That's a hard question. I mean, the technology behind Netflix is incredibly sophisticated, as my friend and a great media analyst, Matthew Ball, has written about on numerous occasions. The streaming tech is impressive. The recommendation engine is relatively advanced. It is... When, when, when someone says... Um, Disney can beat Netflix if it matches Netflix on technology. That is a colossal if. And it's very, very difficult for a company like Disney to essentially disrupt itself. In fact, you know, the history 
of entertainment and the history of, of business is basically strewn with you know funereal stories of companies that either failed to construct themselves on time or uh, knew the changes they had to make but couldn't do so because of internal difficulties. So this is going to be a really, really hard challenge for Disney. How do we know that they will have met the challenge? I mean, I don't know. I guess the proof is in the pudding. Like, Disney eventually is going to have to release monthly and, excuse me, quarterly and annual subscriber numbers when in 2019 and beyond they finally come out with their Disney Flix product, you know, their, their streaming Disney-only product. Investors are going to know really, really quickly um, whether or not Americans and international audiences are signing up for that product. And that's how they're going to be judged. They'll be judged on that number, and, um, and that will be at least the, the, the quantifiable way to assess the quality of their technology. I read a recent article of yours, Derek, that said that, or it's at least seemed to suggest, and you, you say in the article that you've done some reporting and talking with uh, company executives, that 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 ESPN is kind of in this decline. It's dependent on cable, and there's all these issues with people not tuning into TV the same way. I got the impression that Disney's kind of resigned to ESPN's decline. So why can't... My question was, why wouldn't ESPN be able to make a similar transition into a kind of ESPN Netflix, if we're going to go with a Disney Flix analogy? Like, or why shouldn't... why? Why would Disney not be attempting to rescue ESPN or include it in this kind of pivot? Yeah, that's, really, that's a great question. Um, my understanding of the case is that there's, there's a couple barriers here. One is a technical barrier to distributing that much sports live all at once on a streaming site. I'm not sure that that capacity exists. I'm not sure that ESPN has the capacity to do so. Um, even if they did have the capacity, however, to stream perfect, high-quality live sports to hundreds of millions of people all over the world, that still doesn't address the legal challenge of the contracts that ESPN has signed with the NBA, with the NFL, with other sports leagues that essentially stipulate that, that that this programming is going to appear as a part of a cable bundle. When these rules or when these contracts are uh, renegotiated in the early 2020s, maybe that will change, and ESPN as a cable bundle channel will shift more of its content for the ESPN Plus, which is a sort of streaming channel. But those, those legal barriers are in the way. And then the last challenge, after the technical and the legal, is the economic. ESPN makes so much money. I mean, even despite all of the ratings decline, profitability declines that have been widely reported, ESPN still throws off a very healthy amount of profit. More profit alone, if it's one so-called struggling network, frankly, than Netflix. As an entire 100, 100 however valuable Netflix is, I think it's, it's uh, market cap is, as I'm speaking, $149 billion. Um, so, you know, ESPN, uh, if it gave up advertising revenue and subscription revenue as a part of the cable bundle um, and shifted exclusively to an, a, uh, an, an a la carte streaming service where you could you know, choose to pay whatever, $10, $15 a month for it. I mean, th- this, would, this would be a massive shift that would cost the Walt Disney Company and ESPN as a, as a division probably tens of billions of dollars um, or, or at least $10 billion. 
So I, I think it's, it's an incredibly risky strategy, and I, I, I don't think that, that the Bob Iger and the Walt Disney Company essentially want to light money on fire in that way. I think what they want to do um, is essentially nurse their cable, their sort of the, the cable business they have, security and structural decline, even as they invest in essentially a life raft, and, and that life raft is, is their future. It's, it's Disney Flex, because the future of entertainment, I think, um, uh, Netflix would, would tell you, and, and if Disney would, would probably agree, is most likely going to be a stream rather uh, than purchased as what we have thought of for the last 20 years. Great. Interesting. It's interesting that it's almost too, ESPN's almost too profitable and successful to risk even though the long-term picture is pretty negative. Yeah, I think I think that's I think that's a fair way to put it. Um, you know, I think I, I don't think there's any question that ESPN is in structural decline. I don't think there's any question that paid television, traditional television, is in structural decline. But there's an enormous question about what should a publicly traded company do in order to protect its short-term profitability while investing in its future. And you know. Maybe if ESPN were, you know, a private company, um, then it might be more aggressive about pursuing a streaming above all strategy. Um, but with Bob Iger at the helm, who I think has shown a, a mix of sort of uh, forward-looking business strategy and, and conservatism, I imagine he's going to nurture the cable television business, even as he sort of uses some of those profits from the cable television business to build an Netflix competitor uh, with with Disney products. Awesome, Daniel. I think you had you had something that you want to jump in on. Well, I'm curious about uh, you. You've also written, I think, you know, not the only person to touch on the dual present next ESPN, for example, so so powerful. And I'm just curious how the Let's imagine that Disney makes the jump over to a successful, a successful streaming business, whether it's better than Netflix as good or, or good enough. Like, what do you? What is your thoughts on what the economics look like at that point? What is the sort of? I know it's on the one hand you have recurring revenue and you have to represent the consumer sort of advantages there. You don't have to give a cut as much to people in between, but like you're also probably not going to advertise in the same way that you do on cable TV. Like, what, how, do you, how are you sort of... Is it, and I wonder if that adds the questions for Disney as far as whether to go kind of the blazing into this future or whether to go kind of slow and say, like, what does it look like on the other side if they make the transition successful? Yeah, I mean, you, yeah, you, you raise a lot of points that, that I think about all the time, which is, you know, how does a company that is essentially a ticket-selling company, right, in the film industry, you're selling tickets, turn itself into a subscription company? Um, and, you know, in, in a way, you can think of this as sort of like pulling in Adobe. Adobe sort of successfully um, made this transition. Um, you know, you, you mentioned advertising, and I, I, I just want to pause here because I think it's totally fascinating. To get to the last half century, the most important channel of corporate branding has been cable television. Cable news, uh, or at least uh, pay TV, accounted for over 40% um, of advertising revenue uh, as recently as like five years ago. Um, and obviously, this is a business that's in structural decline, and that number is going to shrink pretty much every single year, and I think it's going to shrink 
really quickly. Now, where is that money going to go? Well, let's look at the TV ecosystem. TV watching eyes are switching from the paid TV system, which is, as you said, paid for by subscription fees and advertising, to things like Netflix and Amazon Prime and HBO and Over the Top Showtime and then Disney Flix. None of these products have advertising. And Disney Flix is not going to have um, ads as far as I know, and I've, I've spoken to some people at Disney Netflix. So that means that, you know, it, it's not as though, you know, companies are going to stop having to market their stuff. But it is the case that the television viewing experience has gone from ad heavy to either ad light or ad free. So where's all, where's the rest of that advertising money going to go? Where are corporations going to scream at us to buy their products? Well, they're going to go online. But Who's making money from digital advertising online? It's Google, it's Facebook, those two I think account for over 60% of digital uh, display advertising. And then it's Amazon that's sort of, you know, sprinting along the side to be a, a third runner in this uh, sort of triumvirate. So you have this sort of fascinating situation where, weirdly, the demise of the KTV bundle is, the, is best for not necessarily Netflix or Disney, but for Google and Facebook and Amazon, because that's where all of this advertising money is flowing um, and will continue to flow for the next decade as, as advertising spend shifts from television to digital. So that's like a fascinating story, I think. And one way that I think of that is sometimes is like, imagine if Google and Facebook wanted to design a corporate assassin that was going to take out the pay TV business in the early 2000s, destroy pay TV, make television an ad-free experience, and then free up, you know, $40 billion or something, $70 billion worth um, of advertising spend that could be shifted toward Google and Facebook. Well, they couldn't have possibly thought of a better corporate assassin than Netflix. A, a, a product that has revolutionized television, created a familiarity for audiences that television should, should be ad-free. So I, I, I definitely just want to pause there to, to reflect on what I consider to be an, an underrated part of the story, which is that the demise of television is not just a story about, Facebook, excuse me, about Netflix versus Disney, it's a story about how Google, Facebook, and Amazon are going to benefit tremendously from that shift. The second thing that's really important to think about with advertising is that, like, all right, Disney is, is still going to want to merchandise, advertise its products on this Disney Plus product. And in a weird way, they can do so more effectively because they're not going to be running ads from any other companies, right? Your, your, your movies and your television shows and your, your Star Wars TV programming isn't going to be interrupted by corporate messaging from, you know, Reebok and Geico. It's going to be all Disney all the time. And what Disney can do, essentially, is use the fact that it has a direct relationship with consumers to not only stream um, their products to them, but also sell other products to them. To maybe say, hey, you finished this season of Star Wars, would you like a 5% discount to go to, you know, ride this you know, Star Wars ride, this you know, Star Wars amusement park that we just opened? Uh, would you like a certain amount of money off on, you know, Star Wars bedsheets for your just for your children. Um, and that's why, in a way, the best metaphor for the Disney product might not be Disney Flicks, like Disney but for Netflix, but Disney Prime. Disney or Amazon Prime, but with Disney products. 
And in this vision, I really like Disney, the Disney streaming product, its OTT product, wouldn't just be Netflix for Star Wars movies. It would be Amazon for Star Wars pillowcases and Groupon for Star Wars rides and Kayak for the Star Wars suite at Disney hotels. And that is a product that I think could be unbelievably valuable and unbelievably sort of game-changing um, uh, corporate revolution. I want to jump in here. Uh, that's like a very interesting and multifaceted, optimistic outlook uh, for a successful sort of strategic transition. One thing I was thinking about in looking at your work was this sort of broader question of the economics of video and visual content sort of more broadly. And what I was thinking about is sort of this question is, is actually TV and film and visual entertainment, uh, are they just more at the early stage of the transition we saw with newspapers in the 2000s. You could make this argument that it took a while for everyone to learn to blog and write on the internet and generate all this content for this massive supply to come online. Potentially, it's only recently become easy for people to create video content, or we may just be at the very early stages of that technology sort of being in everyone's hands. Is it possible that the supply and demand situation concerning visual content could undergo a similar transition where the entire economics of the, the idea of video and the way that we consume and produce video could undergo a revolution. And how might that affect this scenario and the strategic decision that Disney is confronting? Yeah. Um, let me reframe the question back to you and make sure that I understand it correctly. It sounds like one thing that you're saying is that in in the newspaper and magazine world, you had a lot of legacy companies disrupted by digital startups that included sort of a mix of old-fashioned reporting and analysis and sort of newfangled, you know, blogging, something closer to you know, you know, cheap, snackable um, content. And similarly, you could have a, that revolution sort of totally upend the television experience as well. In fact, maybe it already is. You know, certainly, a lot of young people um, who don't have cable subscriptions are nonetheless spending all day on Instagram and stories and Snapchat and maybe Facebook. Although that, that seems to be in, in decline among the younger generation. And so, in a way, you could you could say, well, look, you know, look at teenagers, look at as younger twenty-somethings, um, could they haven't just switched, Eric, from you know pay TV to Netflix? They switched to pay TV and Netflix and Snapchat and Instagram, and so we have to think about about those as well, and and, and YouTube, I should say, um, really important YouTube. Um, so we have to think about sort of the total, the total universe of of video content. Is, is that what we're talking about here? In a way, it's kind of in the same way that there was more of a... There were several companies that had a, a, exerted a lot more control over people's sort of reading experience one or two decades ago, three decades ago. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and a, a lot of that was undermined by this just total proliferation of all sorts of different... Uh, the 
The means of distributing content, especially written content, completely changed. And a lot the impact there was to undermine the big players to a large extent. Yeah. And yeah. And so the question is, we're seeing a similar distribution of, you know, video production technology all over the place. Is that something that Disney needs to concern itself with? I can see for arguments for and against that, but I wanted to know what, what, what you thought about a sort of bigger picture think, structural shift. Okay, we were talking, yeah, talking yeah. about whether or not the structural shift in, in video entertainment is an existential, or not even existential, is a serious threat to Disney and its stock price. Exactly, yes. Yes, the, the answer is of course yes. I mean, you know, the, 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 the way that I thought about it in, in my piece from Atlantic Magazine, is I thought about it as um, Disney is, imagine this, this castle, this you know, magic kingdom castle, um, that has built all of these incredible moats around itself. It has the most valuable sports deals with ESPN. It has, you know, the most expensive films, the biggest blockbusters. No one can possibly hope to touch this. But what if the fairy tale castle is flooded by its own moat? Someone could definitely say that ESPN is being slowly flooded by its own moat. That it, it, yes, it's secured in the early 2000s the most expensive sports rights deals. And now some of these deals might seem like, you know, albatrosses around its neck now that you have fewer people subscribing to ESPN, particularly young people. I mean, there's no question that the cable business is floundering, and the floundering of the cable business is bad for Disney, companies for whom I believe as recently as five years ago half of its revenue came from television. You know, the film industry, too, for Disney, has like, been in slow-motion decline. For, like, like, on a, on a, on a uh, you know, ticket-per-person basis, since like the 1950s, we used to buy 30 movie tickets a year. Now the typical American buys four, even um, after MoviePass sort of essentially made uh, our, our movie tickets free for a lot of people after their first purchase. So, yeah, Disney has a lot to be concerned about in terms of the distribution of its content because the distribution is changing. Few people are going to the movies, few people are paying for traditional cable bundles. That said, um, you know, the book that I wrote last year, uh, Hitmakers, um, talked a lot about how if you're trying to evaluate um, the hitmaking potential of any company or product, you have to pay attention to two things. Distribution is number two, and it's actually often overlooked by artists. But number one is always content, quality of content, and in particular, familiarity of content. People love variations on the whole. And no one understands that better than Disney. No one has more valuable IP than Disney. Um, you know, between Pixar and the Marvel comic universe and the animated um, uh, movies and, and Star Wars, I mean, it is and now with the, with the Fox acquisition, I mean, you could have a scenario where in good years, Disney is half of the domestic box office of the United States. I mean, we've never seen anything like this. Disney has such an unbelievable advantage when it comes to hit-making content, when it comes to sort of tentpole content and tentpole ownership, that you can't count it out. And you have to think that if Disney figures out the distribution channels, again, it's a big if, but if Disney figures out the distribution challenge, they're extremely well poised to make a run at Netflix. It's not going to be a five-year challenge. It's going to be a 20-year challenge. But, you know, Netflix only costs like 10 bucks. 
So Disney pricing itself relatively well, it, will, it definitely costs some bucks. People are, are obviously willing to spend more than 10 bucks a month for quality and uh, video content. And so if, if Disney makes a really viable product, I think a lot of families, millions of them, tens of millions of them potentially, um, are, are going to leave at the opportunity of, of, of signing up. Thanks. Uh, Daniel, do you have any any questions here? I don't have any specifically on that, but uh, I, I guess just quickly on Fox, is there anything else that uh, Joker's had in my head is that we should be expecting Millhouse spin-off movies relatively soon, but uh, <laughs> is there is there like is there any is it just a matter of with Fox? Is it really just a matter of give us more ammunition to kind of load up and to give just and they've done so well with their other purchases of content properties essentially that it's just give us more stuff that we can kind of feed into the machine? Yeah, I mean the answer to your question is yes and yes. First, I wouldn't say, you know, not, not, not to tick on your tone in the question, because it's a perfectly good question, but it's, when you say, you know, it's just about adding content, well, yeah, it's just about adding content. Like, the reason that Netflix spends $10 billion a year on content is that it's a content race. Um, once you're relatively equalized on streaming technology and you're, you know, equalized on, on, on marketing and potential reach, then it's, it's a battle for content. And I think it's totally reasonable to say that if Disney figures out certain challenges in the technology side, there's no reason to think that it can't catch up with Netflix relatively soon. I mean, relatively soon. But it can't eventually catch up with Netflix because, look, I mean, what's the biggest new hit that Netflix has had in the last year? That's not a rhetorical question. Like, what would you say is the biggest hit? Last year. We're both such, uh, such idiots about pop culture. I don't know. Uh, I mean, Orange is the new black. black. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, I mean, the, the thing, you're, you're making that point. I mean, Netflix, I think, has actually struggled in the last two months, in the last two quarters, now uh, with, with new sort of brick-shattering cases. And I think that's a sign that it's really, really difficult to grab people's attention. The easiest way to grab people's attention is to have already grabbed their attention, if that makes any sense, right? That's why the biggest movies in America tend not to be original screenplays. They're sequels, adaptations, and reboots. Because of the sequel adaptation reboot, you've already grabbed somebody's attention with the fact that it's a you know, Marvel comic movie or a Star Wars movie or some other sequel. So the fact that Disney owns the valuable IP in the world is really, really important and really critical. The second thing, I guess, uh, that I would... Oh, I, I'm not sure that I remember the, the other thing that you said. Oh, in terms of, in terms of what is setting with, um, uh, with Fox, I mean, I, I think it's not only buying IP, it's also buying Fox, the television production company, which is really fantastic, just world-class at, at, uh, at making television shows. And that's, the, that's the big thing as well. Um, Disney's not going to thrive just by making movies and, and sort of shoehorning them into They're going to have to make new television shows as well, and Fox's TV production company is as good as anybody else. Okay, okay, fair enough. Um, I think that, Mike, do you have anything else on Disney? I had one sort of off-topic question, but... Um, yeah, I just want to. Yeah, I'll go. I'll go for one more. So, I think one thing that we sort of have difficulty wrapping our heads around is this idea of owning owning the content and creating the content and then distributing the content as sort of two separate business activities. Mm-hmm. And they 
they teach you in business school that sort of vertical integration and earning the means of or owning the means of distribution as well as owning a sort of if you think of maybe like an oil company that gets oil out of the ground and then also owns the pipeline an economist might tell you that's sort of economically redundant like it doesn't give you any particular advantage unless they're sort of strategic issues at play where the incentives aren't correctly aligned between the producer and the distributor. So how do you think about the sort of game that Disney plays with cable? Is is it just a question of that distribution channel sort of eroding or is there more to the story? Why is it so important to Disney to sort of own this distribution channel strategically? It's an interesting question. I think the truth is that Disney has thrived in many ways by not owning the channel of distribution, right? I mean, ESPN was at a time in the middle of the 2000s the most viable media property in the world. It was spending off billions and billions of dollars in profit um, effortlessly, not by owning the means of distribution, but by not owning it, right? I mean, this, the ESPN um, was being sold to distributors, right? It was being sold to cable companies. That business model, however, is eroding. Disney doesn't have a choice. It has to own both the content and the means of distribution because the future of streaming television is paying companies directly, paying um, to, uh, entertainment companies directly for the product that they stream. Yeah, yeah, but why build it instead of buy it then, maybe, is another question. Well, they, they did buy it in a way. I mean, they, they didn't develop a lot of this technology. They bought some of the uh, some of the streaming technology from, for example, BAM, which is a baseball streaming technology. But if the question is, you know, why not why not allow? I mean, why compete with Netflix since why compete with Netflix instead of being a customer of Netflix? Like, why why not buy that? Why not buy buy it from? Why go head to head with Netflix in this race instead of retaining the competitive advantage of not worrying about distribution and engaging with an industry leader and buying the service from them? I'm, I'm trying to understand the um, exactly what this strategy would look like. Are you saying that, that Disney should, could use Netflix as essentially the new cable bundle and sell their content to Netflix. I mean, they, they, already, they already did this and they stopped doing it because they realized that they were A, empowering Netflix more than they were making money from Netflix and B, that the only way that they could essentially make up money from the demise of, of the cable bundle was to have a product that consumers would buy directly from them. Okay. So it sounds like just the, the way the, the, that contract worked, ultimately the distribution, maybe not with the cable business, but with the streaming business, there's more power, economic power and bargaining power in the hands of distributors. So it's kind of flipped. Is that fair to say that it's sort of... Yeah, I think, I think, I think it's fair to say that streaming, that, that streaming television right now is a vertically integrated business that when you buy um, HBO Go or HBO Now, you're paying HBO directly. And when you buy Netflix, you're paying Netflix directly. And when you buy, you know, um, an Amazon Prime video, a, you know, Amazon content developed by Amazon, you're, you're paying Amazon uh, directly. 
it doesn't mean that there won't like be some products in the future that maybe rebundle a lot of these bundles. Could totally happen. I mean, in many ways, the history of entertainment is uh, unbundling and rebundling of bundles. That said, Disney is not going to survive as a company if it simply sort of continues a pay TV strategy that worked in 2005 and then sort of rents out some of its content to Netflix. What that's going to do is empower Netflix, allow Netflix to make a lot of money and cut Disney off from the main avenue of making money in entertainment right now, which is not, sell- which is not making money from advertising, but rather selling subscriptions directly to consumers. And if, if Disney refused to get into the business, of selling content directly to consumers, then it would refuse essentially to get into the, the business future of entertainment. Um, and uh, uh, so, so yeah, I guess that would be. I mean, I may have misunderstood the question at the, at the beginning, but um, no, no, I uh, think that's this is good. Just, this is just the, this, yeah, this is the direction that that the television is going. The, television, the future television is vertically integrated system, and if you try to sort of you know rent your your best content. To other companies that are all vertically integrated, um, you are not going to make max contacts. Great, yeah, that's all. That's a good answer. Thank you. Yeah, I'm satisfied at least. Uh, you had one more, Daniel. Yeah, yeah. I, I just, I just wanted to say before that, I, uh, as you were saying all that, it just reminds me of the conversations about the car companies whether they, they can't afford to give out or to like lose the advantage of the software within the car and self-driving and all that. Because if they do, then they just become boxes that mm-hmm. are based, like all the value goes to the Google or Apple or whoever, whoever is playing that game. So I think that's an interesting. I would buy a metal box. I want them to make that company. <laughs> it just has the metal box with the wheels. Oh, yeah. okay. that's, I don't need the markup. Great. Yeah. yeah, the the, one, the the last thing I would say, just, just in terms of in terms of like where media is going, I mean, you know, the two biggest mergers that have been talked about in in media in the last uh, few months, you have Disney and and Fox, which the FCC sort of you know let pass rather easily, and then you have AT and T buying Time Warner, um, which they were a little bit tougher on, or have the children have lost. And that merger is a vertical integration as well, right? Like you have AT&T, which is a distribution company, trying to buy Time Warner as a content company. And, you know, unlike the, the economic lesson that I've been taught in schools, there are all sorts of ways um, to, make this, to make this relationship um, commercially viable. You have, for example, the possibility that AT&T talked about a zero rating HBO. That would mean essentially saying, you know, we charge you data when you watch television. If you watch television on an AT&T contract that is owned by Time Warner, then we will zero rate it. We won't count that toward your data limit. And that will encourage you to watch more Time Warner content um, and encourage you to sign up for products like HBO. And so in that way, actually, the vertical integration is economically beneficial because AT&T is using its distribution power to encourage people to buy their products. Right? And they wouldn't be able to do that, Other, or, or Time Warner wouldn't be able to do that if they weren't cast the distribution. So I, I think that you know, there, there, may, there, there may be various economic models under which vertical integration doesn't seem economically rational, but certainly if it reads the media history of returning, um, that, uh, that's possible. Okay. That's, yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's obviously interesting times in the business, and it'll be interesting to see for Disney and for these other companies, how this plays out and where the 
and if if the future plays out in the way you're talking about who, who does win the battle and so forth. So that's going to be a lot of fun to, to watch. I had one question for you that was off topic, which is just, we, so, you know, we operate with Seeking Alpha, we, we, we sort of get in, we see what's going on in finance a lot and we're kind of in that bubble. And so your bubble kind of follows you to Twitter. And so we see what goes on in what we call FinFit or what most people call FinFit. And I was curious mm -hmm. if, as somebody who, ID the Atlantic is sort of this national magazine and, you know, quite prestigious and tech, regular reader, like it's, it's, a, it's quite a good job. I kind of don't want to like hyper out and kind of sound backhanded. I don't, but like it's, it's a quality magazine. I'm just curious if you, um, if you bump into FinTwit and if, if so, if you have any thoughts on FinTwit or just on the like financial community in general, since you do cover economics so much, since you do cover these sorts of topics, it's just sort of what your, what your thought is on the, on the conversation and on the, on the, I don't know, the, the, the environment. Um, of, of Tintwit? I mean, I, um, I, I would consider myself loosely affiliated uh, at best. And I used to cover finance and, and macroeconomics uh, more exclusively at The Atlantic. Uh, so I follow a lot of people um, on Tintwit. Um, and, you know, my basic feeling is, as with with any you know group, like sometimes there there's groups making socializing um, or socializations uh, that that makes certain conventional wisdoms seem like obvious truths even when when they're wrong. But that's not a criticism of Centrist. That's a criticism of literally every you know uh, online and offline group. I think I, I overall I think that you know I, I appreciate the fact that um, there's a Twitter community that sticks to numbers. You know, maybe they don't always stick to, to facts. You know, no one does. But, like, at least you're grounded in an element of, of sort of quantitative analysis um, that frees you from, or, or not frees you, but that isolates you or insulates you um, from the kind of madness that can infect uh, so much of the truth. Okay. Okay. That's, that's a, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll give a point to think with for that. That's a, that's a good answer. All right. Um, all right, cool. Well, thanks so much, Derek. This is really, uh, really enjoyable and, uh, yeah, I appreciate you taking the time to join us for this and, and share share your work on Disney. All right, great. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks, guys. All right, thanks, Derek. Take care. Thanks for listening to Behind the Idea. I really hope you enjoyed that episode. We had a lot of fun recording it and speaking with these guests. Follow Behind the Idea on Seeking Alpha. We have our own account. Find us on Twitter at Daniel Seeking A or at M. Brooks Taylor and email us at btipod at seekingalpha.com. If you have any feedback, requests, or guests, we just got a request for an, ep for an episode that we'll be doing in the future. Coming up over coming weeks, we have special guests talking about Ralph Lauren. There's special guests talking about Manchester United. We're hoping to have special guests talking about Alibaba, so we're really trying to dig deeper into some of these ideas. We're also going to be covering some new ideas over coming weeks. So we've got a lot coming. Thank you for your support. Please keep listening, and we hope to see you next time on Behind the Idea.